Aunt and Cleopatra. Yes, it's another lovely story of Greek All right, let's just go back to Act One. Yeah. Um, I, have, I do have a question about this, though. Yes. Uh, I know Pompey. Pompey's one of the prevalent characters in the story, but I could have sworn I remembered him being dead up to this point because wasn't Mark Antony the one who beheaded him and sent his head to Caesar? Um, not the same Pompey. Ah, okay. This is his son. That's, that's one reason that he is attempting to um, uh, defeat Rome. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> is, this, is, is, the, is his father the Pompey the Great? Yeah. Or is his son, or is this Pompey No, the no, Great? his father is Pompey the Great. Okay, so I see. So this is Pompey the Minor. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is Pompey <laughs> the Good. Like the, this is Pompey like the average. Pompey the Old. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Cleopatra has... Uh, had sex both with him or been lovers. Well, what did you have? Who do you have up there? You have Caesar and Ptolemy. Oh, okay, yeah, her brother. Um, and I mean, that was the whole reason, like, why the war in the first place started and why she called on Caesar. Yeah. Okay, good. And um, but Pompey the Great also. Um, so. It's something that Antony is going to berate her for later in the play. Okay, um, how many of you actually have the, um, the Arden? Okay, one good thing about the Arden, maybe what I'll do, how many don't? All right, so I think maybe one thing that I will do is um, scan and send you the notes on the um, Dramatis Personae. Uh, which are helpful uh, historically. They um, are good at telling you who's who in uh, the history. So I'm just trying to see where um, Pompey appears in this. Lepidus, Sextus Pompeius. Um, so I'll just read you what the note says. So uh, for um, those trying to keep track, if you're keeping score at home, Sextus Pompeius, the younger son of Pompey the Great and aged about 27 at the time the play opens. Following the defeat and murder of his father by Julius Caesar, he was outlawed um, but occupied Sicily from where he used his ships to rescue his father's former supporters and with their help raided and blockaded the Italian coast. By the Treaty of Misenum, he was made governor of Sicily, Sardinia, and Achaia but was later defeated by Octavius at the Battle of Nalicos. He escaped to Asia Minor, where at the age of 31, he was captured and executed on Antony's orders. Well, it says here the age of 40. That he was executed at the age of 40? It said he escaped to Asia Minor, where at the age of 40, he was captured and executed on Antony's orders. Huh. Does, do you have the Arden? Yes. I also have the Arden. Imagine. So, it also says 31. Yeah, so... It says 40, straight up. It says okay, so this, see, see, this is what I mean about why you have to be aware of textual... Um, <laughs> uh, the production of books. Now I have to figure out... Okay, so reprinted... First published 1995, reprinted 2014, 2015, 2017, 18, and 19. So go, go look at your copyright page. It says on Wikipedia that he was 31, so, so that's right. But, yeah, so it's a mistake that's been correct, silently corrected. So what did you say yours was? So this was reprinted in 2019. Oh, um, okay. It's copyright 1995. It's copyright 1995. But above that, it should say <laughs> reprinted by Bloomsbury Arden Shakespeare. Do you see that? 
See, this is textual scholarship. Yeah. All right, so you have an older edition. Yeah, I probably do. And they've corrected it the, the same way that Shakespeare's printers corrected as they printed. And that's why there are differences between the folios. And that's why it matters that there should be over 200 folios and one would not be enough. I mean, it would be enough for most purposes, but not for all. Okay, so back to Act 1, Scene 1. So, yeah. So, Mark Antony's part of a triumvirate. Yes. And he's got a triumvirate of women who he's cheating on with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't think you would call it a triumvirate because V-I-R means man. Yeah. You might call it a triafeminate. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so, so what do you want to make of that? Well, considering one of them's pronounced dead at the beginning of Act 1. Right. One was literally given away by Octavius Caesar himself. Mm-hmm. And one who, I guess, technically feels the same way because she's technically cheating on Julius's undead corpse. Well, no. <laughs> you, you, except in Hamlet, you can't really cheat on the dead. It would be sad if, if, if you could. Um, but the, okay, so everyone, everyone sees who the three women that Antony is involved with. Who are they? Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Good. Cleopatra. Fulvia and Octavia. Okay, yeah. So, so Antony's married to Fulvia, and that's um, the first thing that we're going to find out in a kind of brilliant piece of. Uh, scene setting or table setting on Shakespeare's part, which is the messenger comes from Rome and um, Antony says, grates me the sum, and then Cleopatra says, nay, hear them, Antony. Uh, what's the them there? What's the antecedent? This is Act 1, Scene 1, Line 20. Why plural? Or the assumption that it came from Rome, so it's probably the other two um, other guesses? What was the question? I'm sorry. It, 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 it's minor, but worth noticing. Nay, hear them, Antony. So, messenger, news, my good lord, from Rome. Antony, grates me, the sum. Cleopatra, nay, hear them, Antony. Yes? The them is in news? Yeah, news is plural. And we don't treat it as plural anymore. Um, the news, we, we, we would sound like jerks if we said the news are good. But uh, news is... and. Probably it takes singular verbs at the time, but it's technically um, plural. It's still pl- plural in French, uh, les nouvelles. The news, things that are, and, and it's actually kind of, kind of fun to think of it think as. It's plural in Spanish also, isn't it? Las noticias. Yeah, noticias, yeah. sounds right. Okay, so, um, nay, hear them, Antony. Fulvia, perchance, is angry, or who knows if the scarce-bearded Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you. Do this or this, take in that kingdom and enfranchise that, perform it, or else we damn thee. Um, So the scarce-bearded Caesar is? Octavius, why scarce-bearded? Yeah, because he's a child, uh, 23, but young. And um, remember what... Macbeth says about stooping to kiss the ground. I will not. Yes. I'm sorry. This is not an answer to your question. Okay. <laughs> 23 is still young. 
<laughs> it wouldn't have been enough to have a beard, like a, like a, the, the full beard that that would be fitting of an emperor. Okay, I just well, I'm I'm reading. I read the Odyssey recently also, um, and they were like Telemachus is a youth, but he had to be a, like like twenty. Yeah, right? yeah. Wasn't the lifespan in these ye olden days like thirty? You went from young to old overnight. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Alexander died at thirty, but like it's not. I mean, like twenty is probably like half. It's probably a little older than that, but, well, the, yeah. The average person was like that, and that doesn't mean that, like, you weren't living past 30. It was just, like, the average of, like, like, because a really significant thing in those averages, I think, is also, like, child mortality. Yeah. Like, if you, like, yeah. So yeah, like, if you don't, if you look at five-year-olds five or, the age of five, yeah, yeah you're, you'll, your life expectancy is more like 40. Yeah. But when you're born, your life expectancy is about 30. So the, um, but it's young as an adult. In other words, there are very few people who are leading or, or filling adult positions at the age of 17, um, like no one or almost no one. So to be 23 and to be one of the triumvirate means that you've been an adult for five years and um, now, in those five years, you're one of you're the most important person in the world, and so yeah, it is young. The um, uh, if you again think of Hamlet, who's an undergraduate and therefore roughly seventeen or so, at the beginning of the play, the fact that he's thirty at the end of the play—not that remember thirteen years have not passed but that he's being represented as a 30-year-old, <coughs> explicitly represented as a 30-year-old at the end of the play, whereas he's explicitly represented as an undergraduate at the beginning of the play, that then means that that contrast between being the age of an undergraduate and being 30 is for Shakespeare something like the contrast between um, uh, being a, a, a new, youthful, brash, up-and-coming person in the new generation and being um, someone who is now um, mature and um, certainly no longer someone who is on the rise. So Hamlet is, is on the rise at the beginning of the play. That's why he's pissed off that the king has come between the election and his hopes, as he puts it, because he had hoped to be king. And that's what he was rising towards, and that has been, um, that he's been thwarted in that. At the end of the play, he's old enough to die as someone, in, in a tragic sense, but as someone who is mature at the moment of his death. It's not so much like Romeo and Juliet dying, still at a fairly immature age. It's tragic, but in a different way when they die from the way it is when Hamlet or Lear or um, other Shakespearean tragic figures die. So it's not a ton of time to work with, but one way to think about this is to say that the period of um, maturity of, uh, of um, uh, what's called the age of majority, that for um, Shakespeare would go, let's say, from about 19 or 20 
well, to the rest of your life, but um, from about 19 or 20 to something like 40 or 50. Kent in King Lear is 48. And so um, he's still, it doesn't mean he's feeble in any way. To be regarded as old is not the same thing as to be regarded as feeble in Shakespeare's day because it's a much longer tale for how long you can live. That is, if you're at age 40, you're not thinking, okay, I'm probably going to die in the next 10% of my life um, because you could still hope to live to be 80 or 90. Um, so it's, so it's, whereas if you think of 80 as the new 40 or 40 as the old 80 or something like that, the difference is if you were 40, then you could still hope to live for another 40 or 50 years. Um, if you are 80 now, you can't really hope to live for another 40 or 50 years. And so there is that difference in, um, what the experience of thinking of yourself as old enough to, um, for it not to be surprising if you die, versus um, how much longer you could nevertheless hope to live. So Antony is 50 at the end of the, Antony was 51 when he died. Um, he's 41 at the start of the play, but that's not something that we're supposed to know. That is that Shakespeare is not giving you ages. He is himself thinking of Antony as a previous generation. That is the generation of Julius Caesar and not the generation of his adopted son, Octavius. Um, he is thinking of um, Cleopatra as being of, that, of Antony's generation and not of Octavia's generation. In fact, Octavia was older than Cleopatra um, by a year. So this is also true if you remember the Henry IV Part I um, play. How many people know it? I talk about it a lot because it's uh, really important. How many people have read or seen Henry IV Part I, Falstaff? And... All right, so in Henry IV Part I, the big conflict is, are, is between two characters, both of whom are named Henry or Harry. Um, Henry IV's son, Harry, who's nicknamed Hal and is always called Hal, and a rebel who is who has helped Henry the Fourth to the throne, but now is part of a rebellion against Henry the Fourth, who is known by the nickname the 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 standard nickname Harry Percy, um, but who is called Hotspur because he has a temper, so he's always um, um, spurred into hot action, or the heat of his temper spurs him into hot action. So the, the main conflict in the Henry IV um, play, in the two Henry IV plays, are between Hal and Hotspur. And at the very beginning, Henry IV says, my son is just this um, uh, um, drunken um, wastrel, spendthrift. It's all very depressing. I can't believe that um, this is how heaven has punished me with a son like this. If I could only discover, if only it were the case, that some um, uh, uh, supernatural creature um, had some leprechaun had exchanged children in the cradle and that Hotspur were really my child and Hal 
was the son of the Percy's, but that they were, but but that they were changelings. If only I could discover that, I would be happy. And for him, for that to be possible, they have to be the same age. That is, it's not like um, Hotspur at the age of forty is going to be lying in his bed um, in the cradle of his father Henry the Fourth, and then suddenly be switched for a little baby who is 39 years younger than him. If you're gonna switch um, infants in cradles, they have to be the same age. And um, so Shakespeare represents it that way and Hal and Hotspur are the same age and they're the rising generation. And Henry IV is um, now older and is not himself, although he will fight in the battle, he doesn't fight well. He is not himself part of the, of the generation that is amassing power. He's part of a generation that is trying to retain his power. In reality, Hal, his son, is his son and is about 16 at the time that the events of the play are set. His father, Henry IV, is about 32, and Hotspur, who, his father, who Hal had hoped would, had been traded in the cradle, whom Henry had hoped had been traded in the cradle for his son Hal, is actually three years older than Henry. So, um, the, uh, the idea that they could be traded in the cradle, yeah, only if someone older than you can be your son and can be your infant son. That's the only way that it would work. So Shakespeare is not paying much attention to ages except when he mentions them. And he mentions them only when mentioning an age will be relevant to the scene that he's doing. So what we find out is that Octavia is 30 towards when Antony marries her and Cleopatra hears the message that Antony has married her. Is that a spoiler? Sorry. Um, but um, Cleopatra is uh, almost a decade older. And um, so she passes over She's looking for reasons that Antony isn't, we've, we've all been there when the person we've been involved with takes, on, takes up with someone else. And we think about all the things that they're not gonna like about that person that will send them back to us. Um, that's what Cleopatra is doing. And so she's getting a description of Octavia and she's really liking what she's hearing until she hears her age. And then uh, she is discreetly silent about that fact. Um, but otherwise, she's really liking what she's hearing about Octavia. So the fact that she's older than Octavia, that matters because she's part of Antony's generation. And the way Shakespeare thinks of the generations, you know, we've seen it to some extent in Macbeth, where the question, could Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have a child or not, is a question that fades from possibility within the play. Um, by the end of the play, it's just not possible. Yeah. So how old is Fulvia in this case? Is Fulvia? Yeah. Um, presumably Antony's age. Um, I don't remember, but um, roughly speaking, Antony's age. Okay. But in The Winter's Tale, for example, The Winter's Tale is, and all those late um, romances are plays in which 
a younger generation that is the generation of people who are up and coming um, turns into the older generation and the their infant children become the up and coming generation in the course of the play so if you so if you think of i don't know the tempest um in the tempest miranda those of you who remember how old is miranda when they get to the island not when they get there oh yeah um, um prospero thinks she won't remember anything about her childhood before the island, but she has these very vague memories. She seems to recall servants, and she remembers that uh, she was crying. Prospero calls her your thy crying self. And um, so she is about two or three when they get to the island. Um, we don't know exactly how old, but two or three is what our own experience would tell us because it's just a beautiful description of um, your oldest memories, which make no sense to you now because um, things have changed so much between your oldest memories and your oldest continuous memories. That is, you all probably can remember every year from first grade, possibly every year from kindergarten, um, but you probably have memories from when you were two years old or so, but you can't, but they're going to be really spotty until you're five or six. And Shakespeare gets that. He gets it perfectly, that Miranda's memories from five or six are she's been on the island. Um, but now, at the end of the play, she's about to get married. Oh, another spoiler. Uh, at the end of the play, she's about to get married, and Prospero who was um, 14 or 15 years younger when he gets to the island, is now at the end of the play about to return to Millen, where he'll be quarantined and then died. Um, Every third thought shall be my grave. And in The Winter's Tale, it's explicitly 16 years that pass between Acts 3 and Act, between actually the beginning of Act, Act 4, Scene 1 and Act 4, Scene 2. It's explicitly 16 years that pass at the beginning of the play, um, Leontes and Polixenes, how many people know The Winter's Tale? So at the beginning of the play, Leontes and Polixenes are remembering their boyhoods um, when they thought that um, they would be boys forever. They didn't understand the time past. Um, now they are 23 at the beginning of the play, and um, having to face adulthood, but at the end of the play, they're 40. So over the, or 39, so over the course of those 16 years, they go from being the powerful people who have just come into their own to being um, the people who are um, giving way to the younger generation. And that's that's explicitly made clear when the statue of Hermione um, when um, Leontes says, but where did all those wrinkles come from in this statue? That's not the way she looked. It looks like her, but um, not the way she looked then. And Hermione says, I mean, sorry, Paulina says, uh, you have to praise the sculptor because she looks the way she would look now, not the way she looked then. Yeah. Um. To be perfectly frank, I know almost nothing about any Shakespeare plays, save for the ones that we talk about vaguely in this class, and of course Macbeth, which we read. Could you give me the brief rundown of what happens in The Tempest? 
Um, Julia? Me? Why me? I don't know. Why not? Do you know? I'm not in it. I haven't read it. I'm, oh, you haven't read Grace? it. Okay, it's up, great. It's up to you. <laughs> um, basically, there's like some backstory that you get like really early on about how this main character, Prospero, was the Duke of like Milan that they pronounced wrong throughout the entire play. And um, yeah. Well, when I was the Duke of Milan, they pronounced it wrong. Yeah, so then um, he basically just like gets usurped and they by his brother and um, the king of Naples and his brother, and they all like take him and take him and his like infant daughter and like throw them in like a boat and like set them out to sea to like drown. Mm -hmm. And then they wind up on this like magical island and like he like enslaves like the magical people on the island, like the magical spirit things and the son of a witch. It's weird. Anyway, and then basically he creates a shipwreck so that all of the people who wronged him wind up on his island and then he like manipulates them and like drives them insane. And then when and then like decides to forgive them and then like marries his daughter off to the king's son and then and they all goes, go home happy. And then he dies. Presumably, no, he, he, goes he goes home, home. to die. He goes yeah, home he goes to home to die. My work here is finished, he goes home to die. Yeah. Um is your hand up there? Okay. What a lovely story, honestly. Like, you know what, I I I can imagine that that would be a great experience for all those involved. Yeah. <laughs> So. It's it's a it's it's a fun story, and it's about theater. Um, no, it actually is. It's explicitly about theater. It's explicitly uh, about theater. Yeah, it's about yeah. the magic of being it being in another world in a, in the world of a play, but the play comes to an end, and um, there's a play within the play in the Tempest, in which which gets interrupted. Uh, no, the the mask. Yeah. Um, which gets interrupted, and what Prospero says about that interruption, this is actually relevant to Annie and Cleopatra, to which we are about to turn. Um, <laughs> what Prospero says about that interruption is that um, these are spirits, uh, do, do, can you recite, as I foretold um, you? Yeah, these are spirits, as I foretold you, um, like all like dust and like turned into air. Yeah, mere air. Yeah. Mere air, like we are, but such we are. We're such stuff. stuff as dreams are made on, and like. And our, our little life, life is rounded with a sleep. So, they're seeing. Oh, you got like, most of it. <laughs> I, okay, I've been in this play twice, but like okay. I haven't memorized Prospero's these long speeches. Like, what character do you play? Um, I'm Ariel. This time, last time I played Sirius. All so right, in the mask. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you think you're getting the goddess series, but you're not. You're getting a spirit who is playing the goddess series. A little bit like in Doctor Faustus, where you have where you have spirits playing Helen of Troy and so on. But um, Shakespeare is what we talked about when we talked about Sonnet seventy three. That time of year, that may me behold, is the way Shakespeare narrows has has stretches of time representing other stretches of time. So that in Sonnet 73, we saw it explicitly that a year represents a lifetime, but a day represents a lifetime or represents a year, which represents a lifetime. And then the fire at the end of the day is um, now takes the place of the day, which has taken the place of the year, which has taken the place of the lifetime. Um, hot God, y'all. And um, the... Uh, Shakespeare is always thinking about the way a play will um, 
get you, will show you life and death, will show you um, people um, living through or to a major transition in their lives, whether marriage or death. And um, so a play becomes something that lasts, as Romeo and Juliet does, two hours, the two, hour, two hours traffic of our stage, as the chorus says in Romeo and Juliet, or maybe more than two hours, but no more than four hours, which is probably how long it took to perform Hamlet. And um, over the course of those two to four hours, what you are seeing is something that is representing the entirety, usually, of a character's existence on Earth. And Shakespeare, as a playwright, is fascinated, as we too should be fascinated, by the fact that something that's two to four hours long can nevertheless feel like a representation of a whole life. So that, um, for example, the um, uh, when Macbeth says, life's but a poor player, a walking shadow that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, um, a lifetime there is being represented as a single hour. Um, what are you as a living being? Someone who will be on stage for an hour. Um, in Hamlet, Hamlet says at two hours into the play that his father has been dead for two hours. And then um, uh, Ophelia corrects him and says, Nate is twice two months, my lord. But what Hamlet is essentially saying is everyone here has been here for about two hours. Yeah, did and Hamlet just smash the fourth wall? Yes. <laughs> oh, he, Shakespeare smashes the fourth wall a lot. Oh, that's good. Um, and um, in Hamlet, Hamlet and Polonius talk about the roles that they played in Julius Caesar, um, which is, which is a, a really funny moment. Um, it's um, um, Polonius comes in and says, I played Julius Caesar, and um, Brutus stabbed me. And Hamlet said, well, that was really brutal of him to stab you. Um, like that, later on in Hamlet, Hamlet is going to stab Polonius. And it's just the audience is going to say, oh, they're doing that again. Um, Burbage, who played Brutus, is now playing Hamlet. And uh, the actor who played Caesar is now playing Polonius. And it's five years later, and they're doing the same thing again. Um, I just heard, by the way, this is, this is a really interesting factoid. I just heard this yesterday. The um, um, Aki Kurismaki, do people know who he is? Most famous for Leningrad, Leningrad Cowboys Go America. What? Most famous, I'll repeat myself, most famous for Leningrad Cowboys Go America. He's a Finnish director. He's really wonderful. Um, and no, 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 he's, he's, he's um, uh, total breakout, uh, wonderful. He, he did a movie called Taxi. No, not ringing a bell. Do you know it, Julia? Yeah, okay. He's great. But I haven't, it turns out he has a, a, he has a version of Hamlet in Finnish. And... Uh, yeah, and there are lots of versions of Hamlet in many different languages. Yeah, Finnish is such a, it's, it's, it's an interesting language for that to be in. Let's yes, be okay, so he has a version of Hamlet in Finnish. It's set as a, um, I believe it is set as contemporary noir, but it's the story of Hamlet. But some, what I found out yesterday was that, um, the, oh, th this came up because Max von Sydow is in it. 
And um, his first line, no, he's not in it. He's in a different Hamlet. I'm sorry, I'm confusing two different stories. Anyhow, it came up because Max von Sydow died, and so um, versions of Hamlet came up. In this version, the um, Hamlet character's first line um, uh, is... I guess the play opens or the scene opens, and I think it's the play itself opens with a pig being slaughtered. And then the Hamlet character walks by and says some words in Finnish that no one could possibly understand if they didn't speak Finnish. Um, and, but the subtitle for those words is he sees the slaughtered pig and he walks by, and the subtitle is, these are his first words, ham? Let me have a piece. And um, apparently that's an absolutely accurate translation of something that is not a pun in Finnish. But Kurzmaki wanted it to be a pun in English, partly because everyone in Finland speaks English. So if they thought about it, they would see that there's this pun in a, a, a far-fetched pun in a different language. Um, so that... Um, <laughs> people would think, oh, why, does, why is that his first line? And then they'd remember it was an English language play and they would realize he was saying, Ham, let me, be a let me have a piece. Um, so once again, you've learned something. Yeah. So all this talk about actors and shadows has led me to a really interesting thought that I've been pondering for a little while. And it's the fact that people on stage are essentially living the life of another person. Yeah. And at the end of the night when the play is over, they die as that person right. in order to come back to life as the person they once were. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Exactly. And so what and the person they once were is unlike a character in a play, especially a character in a comedy, the person that they once were is the mortal person who will die. And that is why when Prospero says that he's going to return to Milan where every third thought will be his grave, um, the time on the island has been the magical time. And now that time of magic is over. And Prospero explicitly says that, that he's breaking his staff and burying his book of spells. Yeah? Another thing with like this like span of time like the tempest is supposed to take place over three hours, so it's like very nearly like in yeah. real time, and it's like kind of chaotic. So a lot happens, and then it's like, oh yes, it's only been like three yeah. hours. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. The tempest is Shakespeare's only real time play, and um, so so the time that's that's projected into it, which is the time of memory, is not time that actually uh, occurs during the play. It's what characters in the play recollect. Yeah. So, um, do you think this is relative carelessness with regard to a character's ages and um, the span of time, like this violation of the age of time? Do you think that has to do with um, kind of the character orientedness of these plays? The, sorry, the characters. As opposed to kind of the, the, the plot based poetics of Aristotle. You know, like yeah. In, 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 in their plot, it, it's all about. Oh, I see. But whereas, like, I think you seem to kind of emphasis the, the kind of the character-based nature of these plays. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that what Shakespeare wants to do, especially in the tragedies, but not only in the tragedies, is to have time pass for characters where what it means for time to pass is that 
they are confronting something um, new either in themselves or in the world that requires them to become new in themselves or to change what they themselves are over um, the course of, of what's unfolding. And um, the one thing that I was thinking about, and then we'll talk about Annie Cleopatra, but um, here, here is, it's, it's that what literature can, can give you that in a sense history can't quite and um, that movies can give you above all is the um, um, exposition of the pa- of passing of time for a person without having to go through all the details of it. You can just see someone young and then you can see them old. And a play can give you that um, by having a bunch of time pass. Often it'll happen between plays, at least earlier in Shakespeare's career, so that the end of Henry IV, um, so the end of Richard II has um, Henry become, has just become king, and now he is powerful, he is the person who's running everything, he has gotten exactly what he wants, and he's now king of England. Then the next play, Henry IV, part one, he has the, he's got the last lines of Richard II, and then the first lines of Henry the Fourth, Part One, and the first lines of Henry the Fourth, Part One are so shaken as we are, so wan with care. So we've gone between plays from uh, the person who is at the height of his power to a person who is now an old man who has to deal with challenges to his power. And then we find out in that very speech that it's only a year later, but because the character has already been presented to us as someone who is um, shaken and wan with care, um, his beard turns white or is described as white shortly after that, um, that we accept that he's an old man, and we don't think about the year between the two plays as significant um, for really figuring out how old he is. He's gone from being the young star, or co-star really, but the young star of his own story, to being the um, father figure, the character actor, let's say, in his son's story. And um, that's simply the presentation of the character. So Shakespeare, um, that early, he's not doing it within single plays. That is, he's not having someone turn from young to old in the course of a single play. But by the time you get to Hamlet, he is having that happen. Hamlet does go from being young to being at least, let's say, middle-aged in being, being mature as a 30-year-old in the course of the play. And in Antony Cleopatra, 10 years pass in the course of the play, but you would never know it, um, partly because the play, like Macbeth, is very, very rapid. Things do happen really rapidly in the play, 
And um, Shakespeare, in Ending Cleopatra, he's actually not having characters change their age. Um, here he's just not um, sticking to historical chronology. Uh, but in Hamlet and in um, the later romances, he does have characters change their age. So um, here is this amazing scene setting, which is um, the scarce-bearded Caesar, so now we know that he's young, um, is giving Antony orders, even though Antony is supposed to be part of the triumvirate. Nay, hear them, Antony. Fulvia, perchance, is angry, so we may not know who Fulvia is, we in the audience yet. Um, or who knows if the scarce-bearded Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you. We in the audience probably know, do know who that is, um, partly because we've seen Julius Caesar, uh, to which this is a sequel. Uh, Antony, however, is now much older than he was in Julius Caesar. Those of you who've read or seen Julius Caesar will know that Antony runs a race in Julius Caesar. He's an athlete. Um, he's a warrior, but no athlete in Antony and Cleopatra. But he is, he is um, older. Um, so who knows if the scarce spirit Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you. Do this or this. Take in that kingdom and enfranchise that. Perform it or else we damn thee. Antony, surprised. How, my love? That is... Um, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Um, Cleopatra goes on, perchance, so um, Fulvia perchance is angry, and then she uh, quotes her own word, perchance, nay, and most like, you must not stay here longer, your dismission has come from Caesar, therefore here at Antony, where's Fulvia's process? Caesar's, I would say, both. So she turns to the messenger and says, so what is it that Fulvia is um, commanding Antony to do? And of course, he will obey her, or Caesar's, and he'll obey Caesar. He'll obey Fulvia as though she were Caesar, and Caesar as though, she were, as though he were Fulvia, because Antony is a person who doesn't have the backbone to um, stand up for himself. Um, and who is she hoping he will actually obey? Her, her Cleopatra. Call in the messengers. As I am Egypt's queen, thou blushest, Antony. So there he is. Um, she sees him blushing, and that would be uh, one of those implied stage directions. And that blood of thine is Caesar's homager. Else, so thy cheek pays shame when shrill-tongued Fulvia scolds the messengers. So he's, he is blushing, and she is working on him. And then Antony has the first... Um, of what you should really be paying attention to here. Um, the first example of a third-person imperative. So third-person imperatives in English. Um, everyone knows what an imperative is, like do this or else we damn thee. Um, um, take in, do this or this, take in that kingdom and enfranchise that, perform it or else we damn thee. That's a second person imperative. Imperative so is call in the messengers and um, um, everything, um, uh, call in the messengers, um, hear them. Um, those are all second person imperatives and we're used to that. Third person imperatives in English are things like the most common is long live the king which would be something like make it so, make it be the case that the king live a long time, except there's no person to whom you're addressing the make it there. So it might be may it be the case or let it be the case. 
that the king live a long time. Um, it's unusual in English. It's much more common in other languages, but a standard version in English is long live the king or um, in an execution, let him be hanged by the neck until dead or um, let him be brought to a place of greater safety. And that is misleading because it sounds a little like a second person imperative. But if you think about it, when you say, if, if, you, if you're calling upon someone, if you're pronouncing um, execution upon someone, when you say, let him be hanged by the neck until dead, you're not saying, look, if he wants to be hanged from the neck until dead, let him. Um, you know, it's his neck, his death, let him. Um, it's not don't interfere. It means it has to be the case. It is required to be the case that he be hanged by the neck until dead. So when Antony says, let Rome in Tiber melt and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall, there it's not clear yet, but you will see many examples of this. Cleopatra will say, rot Rome. And when she says rot Rome, she does, she's, that's a third person imperative. Let Rome rot. Not permitted to rot, but she's demanding that it rot. So Antony might be saying rot Rome here, let Rome and Tiber melt. Or he might be saying let it melt if it wants to, I'm not going to interfere. Let Rome and Tiber melt and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall. Why arch? Yeah. Well, that was like a really like iconic part of Roman architecture. Like they used that a lot because it was like structurally sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you think of all the arches in Rome um, that, are tri- that are triumphal arches, um, the building of arches as monuments was a standard thing to do in Rome. There is also the other kind of arch that we are familiar with is what? Where do we see arches as in the atmosphere? Like you mean a rainbow? Yeah. Yeah, so there are two kinds of arches, arches made of stone and rainbows. And um, in French, the word for rainbow, anyone know? All right. I thought you took German. Um, arch in the sky. That, this is a standing joke between us. Arch in the sky. Um, the goddess of the rainbow, does anyone know? Iris. Cleopatra's servant is also Iris. So one way to think of Rome versus Alexandria versus Egypt is stone arch versus rainbow. Um, and the rainbow is insubstantial, but for some to be preferred to the stone arch. So let the wide arch of the ranged empire fall. Here is my space. Kingdoms are clay. Our dungy earth alike feeds beast as man. So earth is just dunged with manure, and it feeds beast as man. Earth means nothing. The nobleness of life is to do thus. And what is, what is the thus? What does he do there? Yeah, embraces or kisses her. Um, 
when such a mutual pair and such a twain can do it, in which I bind on pain of punishment, the world to wheat, we stand up peerless. So he is demanding that the world know that they are peerless. The Greek word for that is amemitobion. That is what Plutarch quotes Antony as saying. There is no life like ours. So that is we stand up peerless is um, ultimately comes from Plutarch. And then Cleopatra teases him and does some more scene setting. Excellent falsehood. Why did he marry Fulvia and not love her? So, or not love her? I'll seem the fool I am not. Antony will be himself. What's her implication? Yeah. That, like, um, if, if you don't love Fulvia, then, like, why should I believe that that you'll love me and, like, I'll be made a fool if you marry, if I marry you thinking that you're going to love me and you're just going to be the same person you were to Fulvia as you were to me. Okay, good. So just by way of scene setting, notice that the audience who might not know who Fulvia is, now we know who Fulvia is. So why did he marry Fulvia? Oh, that's why she's talking about Fulvia. Um, so that's, that's just very elegantly done on Shakespeare's part. This is just stagecraft. This is, this is um, being an expert writer. I'll seem the fool I am not, though. I, I'll seem the fool I am not. Antony, so what's the parallel? I'll seem to be X and Antony will... If you were doing a direct parallel, what would it be? You, this way, we, that. Anyone know what that's the end of? Nice, yes. Um, a great, amazing moment at the end of Love's Labor's Lost when the play is over and the actors and the audience have to separate. So you this way, we that. I'll, I'll play for um, um, the Tigers and you. Just do a parallel. I'm going to go play for the Tigers and you are going to... Yeah, I'm going to go play for the Lions, and no one will play for the Bears. Okay, so I'll seem the fool I am not, and Antony will? You mean, well, in the notice, it's like the deceiver, but the, but the way that I would be framing it from what you're saying is like Antony will be smart. Antony will act smart. Okay, yeah, you would, you would expect some, some parallel um, or some balance, but her little joke is I'll seem the fool I am not, that is, I'll pretend to be a fool and believe him when um, I'm too smart for that. And Antony will be, will be the fool that he is, is what is where the sentence is telling you it's going to go. But she doesn't have to quite say that. She says, I'll seem the fool I am not, and Antony will be himself. Um, so that's her little joke and her little tease there and basically you gotta love her that's the lesson for today you have to love Cleopatra on every level okay see you guys on Thursday either on Friday either in person or not yeah